Hey, Sales Lift Nation, it's your host, Tyler Lindley. Today, I have Nick Capozzi on the podcast. Nick, how you doing? Man, I can't be better right now, frankly. And I'll tell you why, because we'd originally scheduled to record this and I was so sick that I had to reschedule. And all weekend I thought, man, I just hope I'm healthy enough to record with Tyler on Monday. You thought about me all weekend. I don't know whether to be thankful or scared, but either way, I'm excited. Nick Capozzi, for those that don't know, is the head of storytelling at Demo Stack. You can find him in that baby blue Demo Stack all over the world, not just the country, but literally all over the world. Some have called him the Anthony Bourdain of tech. And we're here to find out what that means exactly, but also to talk about what does it mean to be B2C in a B2B world, which I know we live in a B2B world, Nick, but what does it mean to yep. be B2C in a B2B world? I want your thoughts. That's a great question. And I'll tell you, I have a really unique background, which is why that tends to come up in a lot of my conversations. So long story short, I worked in the cruise industry, pitching duty-free product, duty-free ink liquor tobacco. It's really like high-end Swiss watches and jewelry. Hmm. So I was selling luxury goods to people that didn't need to buy luxury goods while they were on vacation. <laughs> so it was the most B2C sale there ever was. At least a car, there's utility to that. If you're car shopping in a B2C world, there's utility. But for luxury goods, there wasn't. So I have to get you down to this dark theater on the first day of the cruise, when you're coming from New York City and it's 20 degrees outside and now you're warm and toasty top deck sailing out of Miami, you don't want to come see my presentation. But that's what we did. When I accidentally pivoted into tech, that was the first thing that caught me off guard was how we went into these so structured, process-driven B2B conversations. And I think sometimes we forget that there's a person on the other end and no matter what we're selling, whatever kind of solution it is, regardless, we're still selling to people. I just think it's a little bit of a different take than what I walked into 18 months ago when I started this accidental journey. You mentioned that you accidentally pivoted into yep. the tech. Why the pivot at all and why tech? I got out of cruise right before COVID, which was just lucky. Good so time. I wasn't yeah. scrambling. <laughs> and it took a VP of sales job for a manufacturing firm in Phoenix. And it just wasn't my cup of tea. Mm. It was my first sales leadership position outside of Cruise. I was in Cruise for a long time. And what I came up with working in these creative ways to sell things with these creative ideas and creative content just wasn't the thing here. Mm. And so I quit mid-COVID. I quit September of 2020. And everyone said, you're nuts. You're quitting like a really good mm -hmm. VP job in the middle of COVID six, seven months in. You're nuts. But I said, I'll take a chance. And I started posting content and there was no playbook. I wasn't trying to get into tech. There was no Justin Walsh playbook. There wasn't a master plan. I didn't know what an SDR was 18 months ago. Never mind what <laughs> ARR was. But what happened was I just started posting content on LinkedIn. Everyone always told me, Nick, you should post on social. And I never thought anything of it. I said, we post on LinkedIn about what I know, mm. which was a lot of sales presentation skills. And what I realized very quickly was that tech there was a lot of sales presentation skills that were necessary. So I just kept posting these videos for a few weeks. And then I got my first call from a sales leader mm -hmm. and they said, Hey, listen, can you sit on on demos for us and just critique mm. our demos? And I said, you bet I can. <laughs> and that just snowballed into yeah. 18 months as doing sales consulting, mostly on presentation skills, demo, being camera ready, mm. which means a lot of things. But how do you take this 10,000 hours that I have on a stage in front of 500 people, yep. that's the major leagues, to get into a Zoom box for me is a little league, mm. just based on experience and hours, which just became something that I taught. There was a lot of room for it in a pandemic Zoom-based world. Which I love that you started with content, started from an organic place. What type of content, what did you start doing? Did you just start recording videos and posting them or what did this content look like? 
It was all video. Again, I didn't have a playbook. So a lot of people today would tell you, if you're going to try and get based on LinkedIn, make sure you're doing so many text-based posts. And back then the algorithms changed a bit. Not that I'm chasing their LinkedIn algorithm, but it's changed where now they're more receptive to video. But back then it was just video was not their priority. But I realized very quickly that if I did a one minute video or a three minute video, people watch 45 seconds. The next thing I realized very quickly was I ran a poll and I said, what percentage of people who are watching these videos watch with sound on thinking it would be 80, 90%, 70% watched without sound. Mm. So then I started putting subtitles on, which seems like a simple thing, but what I'm doing is I'm catering to my audience and what they asked for was what I kept delivering and they just took off. And what was interesting was I didn't have a huge following, but it was very robust. Mm. So because I was using video. I felt I was getting a much more engaged interaction with people that I was interacting with on LinkedIn. And they could see me. I was a known commodity. And then when I meet them in person, I go up to shake their hand and they're like, oh, wow, it's you. I never had that as a salesperson. Oh, it's you. Now it's they've taken me from this video, this visual, and now I'm live. And there was already this bridge built, even though we had never had an interaction. Do you think enough sellers utilize that. You just talked about building a personal brand and building familiarity with yourself or your company or with whatever. And such that the first interaction was, oh, it's you. Because that's an impactful first interaction for someone to already feel like they know you or for there to just be that level of familiarity when you're meeting somebody for the first time. So you know what's so interesting? I love what I'm doing now, but if I wasn't, I would probably be focused on helping a lot of people build their brands online because I saw how powerful it was Mm -hmm. for myself, but then other people that in parallel were also building brands and where they've wound up since I've been online and aware Mm. of this and how people that I know who literally a year ago, let's say May 1st, 2021, had zero followers and now have 25,000. And what is that strategy? And how do you approach that? I know we're not talking about that necessarily today, but I just think there's no question that people buy from people they like, people buy from people they trust. And the more interactions they have, even if it's asynchronous, they're still having interactions with you. It definitely makes you a trusted source of information. Do you think that sales reps should be utilizing asynchronous style communication more? Do you think it's too driven on live interaction? Because you also, it seemed like the live. You grew up in a live world and we're selling live and there was an audience there and there's feedback. There's an advantage to live. Can you get the same level of impact asynchronously as you can live in sales? The way I look at it is that asynchronous is the bridge to the live Mm. interaction, whether that's in person or whether that's an actual virtual conversation. But the simplest place to start talking about brand building or who it really can be effective for is someone who's prospecting. That's the easiest way to start the conversation. And it makes no sense. There's a dozen ways you can use video or different techniques throughout the process, but there's no question that prospecting is usually where people start. Mm -hmm. And it makes a lot of sense. But the irony is 5% of people have actually sent a prospecting video. Why is that? Because they're not comfortable. They're not comfortable on camera. You think it's sales reps are uncomfortable on camera? I will have a 30 minute conversation with someone and get them, but I say camera ready. Mm -hmm. And it changes the dynamic because what they're trying to do is boil the ocean. They're trying to do too many things in that video at once and they're critiquing the video. But the reality is that ums and ahs and mistakes and flubs are very humanized. I had this one seller for me on a cruise line. He was British and he was so polished and so flawless that he was unapproachable when he got off stage. And that was a problem. So we had to work with him to start fumbling or, or, um, 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 he had to fake it. 
Yeah. He had to fake making mistakes because he was too much like a BBC presenter. And to an American audience, that was intimidating because 80% of our audience on the cruise ship would have been American. Yeah. Or North American. But most of us don't have to fake the ums. Most of it, it naturally happens because we're nervous and because that's human. Just to add in filler language. Right. Add in screw up. <laughs> But a video that should take you 30 seconds to prepare and send now takes you three minutes or 30 minutes mm. because you keep recording because you're trying to make it flawless. You don't like how you look in that lighting. Little things that no one else is noticing, but we're self-critical that way. One of the things I tell people is just shoot it and send it. And even though it's going to be very uncomfortable hitting that send button, once you've done that 10 times, it becomes very easy. The second thing is it is so easy to self-correct any kind of presentation you're doing, whether you're doing demos or whether you're doing videos yep. for prospecting, I think the opportunity is that re-watching your tape, which no one wants to do because what we just said, they're uncomfortable. But again, you eat that frog and you watch it eight times, 10 times, and you'll start to self-coach. And then you'll start to realize, as opposed to looking for the flaws, you'll be like, if I pause right here before I said something important, mm -hmm. and now I can see how that would have been impactful. Mm. It's a shift that can happen quite dramatically. It is a tipping point. But who sits down and talks about this? It makes it easy for people to do it. Not many people. What goes into a prepare for the camera session with you? Are you just trying to teach people how to have the confidence to shoot it and send it? Or is it more than that? It's more than that, obviously, the confidence. But it's just how do you light yourself? Natural lighting versus fake lighting yep. versus what should that cost? What angles should your camera? I'm breaking all my rules today because I've got something going on. So I'm in my guest bedroom <laughs> here. But what level should your camera be and how should it tilt to right. give you the optimal lighting that's going to make you feel most comfortable about how yeah. you look? We're all okay with how we look and how we present. But when it's recorded and it seems like it's in perpetuity, we get way more granular with our self-critique. So it's almost like you differentiate between run and gun style, one off, I'm sending a one to one video to a prospect versus recorded one to many. This could go out to more than just one person. Do you think that sales reps should be splitting those two into two separate groups and devoting different levels of attention and energy to both? Yes. And it depends on, first of all, who you're working for, because yeah. a lot of people will give you a lot of leeway, but you do have to respect who you're working for and what they'll have you do. But frankly, depending on if I was an AE today or an SDR, depending on how many emails I had to send out or phone calls I had to make, it is actually quicker if you get into a cadence of recording these personalized videos and having that as a personalized follow-up, which is relevant on so many levels. Yes. I just went to an event and obviously my email got out there and I probably had over a hundred cold emails over the last, let's say five, six days. They were all the same. Did one single person send me a custom video? Nope. Wow. And these were people that you met in person or these were just, you ended up on a list of the attendees? Ended up on a list. Okay, got it. But you're the only guy in the blue demo stack shirt that was walking around the event. If they wanted to make a video, it would have been very easy to do. All I'm saying is that if you had sent a video and in brackets put personal video, yep. you're more likely to get my attention. And I will say this too, I'm assuming we're talking more to the B2B community here on this show, Tyler. The other thing too is that people in B2B are somewhat used to getting videos but there's so many places that we sell into that are not at all. And it's shocking. Mm. And we get, I think, so blind to the fact that, oh yeah, I got a video sometimes, or, oh, this is unique. But I was just talking to a BBC environment person and I was like, why don't you take a custom video of that and send it? They're like, I never thought of that. And I'm like, neither has your prospect. Mm. How long would it take you? If you met with 20 prospects over the weekend, how long would it take you today on Monday when it's quiet? in this B2C environment 
send out 20 custom videos, just a quick follow-up, 15 seconds each, 10 minutes, 10 minutes of work. I just see this as a stop. No, that makes sense. Like you said, we live more in the B2B world, but it sounds like you think B2B is almost too B2B. You think there's lessons to be learned from the B2C environments. What else can we learn? How can we be more B2C in this B2B world? Listen, I could. this could be a eight-hour discussion on how to be more B2C, but here's what I'll tell you why I think thinking about it this way is really important. At the end of the day, someone is looking to purchase something. If I'm really getting in front of someone, it's because they're looking to make a purchase, if they're a real, credible, qualified lead. So they're probably looking at 10 products. If I'm selling a widget, everyone else's widget is pretty much the same. But if I can stand out and build a champion on the other side, if I can send a personal note or a personal video, or if I can give something that actually is relevant to the person that I'm talking to, what happens then is sometimes in as little as a five-minute conversation, I just got into the top three. Because the reality is in their mind, most of the products are the same, but I have kept myself in the conversation and given myself more opportunities, more bites at the apple Mm -hmm. because I built a champion, because I did something human on the other side, as opposed to just blitzing out emails or cold calls. And that's the thing too, frankly, Tyler, I have all the time in the day for people who are making a hundred cold calls a day. It's very difficult. But also on this list, I probably had five or six cold calls in the last few days because I was on that list. Mm. No one was ready with their script. Do they know their script? Do they have it memorized? Like their national anthem, like up, down, left, right. So did they all start that way though? Did they all start? Hey Nick, it's Tyler from the sales lift. Can I have 27 seconds before you hang up on me? Did they all start and sound like that at the beginning? No, because they were all rookie SDRs who had not had any training and were not tight on what they were doing. It was lost from the get-go. You just felt like it was a rudderless boat right off the bat. 100%. The other thing too is I want to hear pitches. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hear when someone's got something creative to put in front of me. You picked up the phone. You got the result. Hell, just getting connected is hard enough in prospecting these days. You got connected. They had their at-bat and it sounds like they struck out. It wasn't even a strikeout, man. It was like, they didn't even have their belt on, their pants are hitting the ground, they're swinging (laughs) for the fences. They don't even know. (laughs) It took a minute or two to figure this out, or you could tell in the first five seconds. First five? Yeah. Okay. That's what you have. You have five seconds to A, am I going to continue listening? Yep. Or B, this is interesting enough that I should listen. I had one guy just, this is what our product does. I'm like, sorry, what? Just right out of the the gates. This is what our product What was your name? Yeah. Yeah. But because they're nervous, here's what I'll tell you. Let's go back to baseball. I've done an analogy a couple of times. You strike out seven out of 10 times. You still get those three hits out of 10. You're an all-star. Yep. So that same, let's take that same math. If I get a hundred cold calls in a day and I get two people to pick up, I have to hit those strong doubles to the gap. I got to be ready. The minute that it's not the line beeping, I got to be, here's my 27 seconds. And it's so tight and so polished. And that's the mistake people make is that, and I reference it. You got to know like a national anthem. If I ask you to spot off your national anthem right now, Tyler, you know what up, down, left, right. Oh, say, can you see? Are we talking about that one or? <laughs> 100%. Oh, I can go Canada for you if you want. <laughs> You're going to go Canada? Okay. We could have dueling national anthems just to see no, how no. ready we are right now. <laughs> But my point is, you know it. Here's the thing too. You brought up the word script, which for a lot of sales reps is a four letter word. I coach a lot of SDRs and a lot of A's and they're doing prospecting. And as soon as I say script, I start getting the excuses. I don't want to sound like a robot. 
I won't sound like myself. This is going to sound scripted. This is not going to feel like me. They're going to know I'm reading. They're going to know this is a script. All that starts coming your way. And I'm like, all right, cool. Why don't you wing it then? Let's see how you winging it goes. How does you winging it goes when you don't even know anything and you're going to just wing it? Let's see how that goes. Let's try it your way. So here's my answer to that. This is a mistake people make. When I was pitching product on a stage, people were literally paying by the second. So I had to know my scripts. So we're selling Swiss watches as an example. How do I make 15 different Swiss watch families all sound different? They're all Swiss watches. To an American audience who isn't thinking about Swiss watches every day, gets very homogenized very quickly. It's true. I need to tell really distinct stories. And the scripting was so important because if I winged it, well, suddenly I'm bleeding into everything else. Yep. The reason that I learned this is that if you have it memorized so well, fucking 27 seconds, but you have it memorized so well that it's programmed that it flows off the tongue mm-hmm. so perfectly that it doesn't sound scripted. Right. You sound scripted when you don't know that 27 seconds. Mm-hmm. And I will argue that all day till the cows come home. Yep. If you know it, it's going to sound natural no matter how it comes off, even if you um or ah or flub or flop. That's okay. But you have to know that 27 seconds, like you know your most favorite song. Do you think it's simply knowing it though, Nick? Or do you think it's also knowing it and believing it? Actually believing that you're adding value or providing something of service to this person on the other end of the line? That's a psychology question. I'm not a career counselor. (laughs) You could give me a script right now. Let's say if I didn't really believe in the product, I didn't know much about it or believe that this was helping this other person, would that impact the execution of the script? Or do you think fake it till you make it, you can script anything and you can drive it with your personality and your energy? No, I am not a fake it till you make it guy. First of all, I think you need to believe in the product that you're selling. And I think if you're new, in theory, in SDR, you got six to 12 months. If you're meant to be in sales, that's probably how long you have as yeah, an SDR. Maybe 18 months in an enterprise setting, yeah. The idea here is you should be so excited about your company for the first three to four to five months because you should just be excited about the opportunity. Yeah. You don't know enough to understand if your product is really good or not. But let's say you're selling something. Demos is easy for me. I did demos my whole life. It was such a natural tie-in. And is that what Demo Stack sells as demos? Is it just selling demos? Absolutely. So what we do is we clone the front end of your product. So mm-hmm. we clone, basically, we allow you in our environment to fully use your product without it being attached to the back end data. Mm. What that allows you to do is so basically, I talk to sales engineers every day who spend hours, sometimes days prepping a demo for a client. With DemoStack, you just click clone and it clones the front end and you're, you've got the environment, you can edit it. And so mm. it's great. But where I was going was it was a natural fit because it's what I did. But if I had to sell medical devices, for example, Maybe I haven't thought of all the benefits. Maybe I haven't thought of the person in the hospital that could use this imaging device and how that it helps their life. I'm thinking of it, DemoStack, what does it do? It saves a sales engineer hours and hours, if not days. I'm making their life easier in whatever way that is. But the reality is most of the products, unless it's not a great product, most of them are doing something to help. Or else they'd be out of business. How else can they afford a sales team to go sell a product if it sucks? Exactly. You've got to assume that they've met the minimum viable product of it's solving something for someone. Now we want people to go sell it for us. So what you need to decide then, again, if it's not vibing, the script isn't vibing with your own belief system, then what are you selling? I can't sell something I don't believe in. There was products. It would be, hey, Nick, it's Caribbean season or it's Alaska season on the cruise lines. Here's 60 new products. There's inevitably some I'm like, can't even sell this. (laughs) 
Would you just choose not to sell them? Hey, I'm only going to sell these three out of six. Or did you have to muscle your way to those other three? You didn't really feel that great. It was a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B, but I'll give you another example. Have you been to the Caribbean, Tyler? I have. It's been a while, but yeah, I've been there. Okay. Do you like coffee? I don't. I don't drink caffeine. Okay, but you love someone who loves coffee, I bet. My wife loves coffee, yes. 100%. Let me tell you about Jamaican Blue Mountain Coffee. So Jamaican Blue Mountain Coffee is really neat because it's grown in this unique mineral content. It's about 5,000 feet up in the Blue Mountains of Jamaica. And this has been the most award-winning coffee in the world. And the reason that you don't hear about it every day is because 90% of the harvest every year is pre-sold to the Japanese market, who was in on this a long time ago. That's all true. And that's the story of Jamaican Blue Mountain Coffee. And it's very easy to get behind that because you don't, you didn't love coffee, but someone that you love (laughs) loves coffee. Seriously though. I like that you pivoted right off of that immediately. Do you drink coffee? No. Oh, do you know someone that does? You were ready for that. And talking about the SDRs, that was an objection I gave you. That wasn't the answer you're expecting. You were expecting me to say, I love coffee. I go to Starbucks every day, but I didn't. You were immediately ready to pivot and move. You were going either way, but you were ready for it. What's interesting about that, I'm going to circle back to, we just talked about fake it till you make it. That's why I think fake till you make it is baloney because I never count on people above me to train me. Mm. I need to be in charge of my own enablement. No matter what they're giving me, I still need to do more research. I need to put more time in. I need to better understand the market. I need to better understand objections, discovery. What are the right questions to ask? To me, fake it till you make it, I don't like that at all because what that does is basically lets people go up and take these at-bats without looking at who the pitcher is. Mm. There's enough data on every single pitcher that's coming out of that bullpen. (laughs) You should know all six guys, how they throw, sidearm, slider, curveball. You need to know coming out. I always taught people that too, even if I was training them. Look, I'm training you this. You are responsible for your own career. You need to go out and get your own information, build your own portfolio of how to handle all these objections in your head, what works for you. But if you just wait for those at-bats to come, you're practicing on your prospects. Yeah, which is Wasted a scary, scary proposition. You put all that marketing, all that, effort, all that effort, all that money, all that time. You put all that time. You got someone who's actually buying and then you're faking it till you made it. Yeah. There's not a lot of things that I'll stand on a soapbox for, but that's one of them. <laughs> no, I totally agree. I thought it's interesting that you said you could never count on the people above me to train me. But really, that's what a lot of, especially newer reps, that's what they're looking for. So you think even right out of the gates, new reps should be taking more of a personal responsibility for their own professional and personal development. It's your career because you're gambling on someone who's dealing with their own problems, their Mm -hmm. own headaches, their own senior leadership coming down on them. If you look at tech, if we're talking to a tech environment, Mm -hmm. by the time you get to series B, you've been through three VPs of sales. So who are you listening to? Listen, the reality is there's a lot of different ways to make sales happen. But if you're listening to one person and suddenly you get a new message, it's very confusing. The way I look at it is that everyone has their own agenda in a business. No matter how high you're carrying your company's flag, you should have your own personal agenda. And that should be to be as successful as possible. And when I talk to a rep and they're like, my training, and I got this great and go through it and put more time in than anyone else in your company has before you. However, get into Thursday night sales, get into a community. If you're a sales engineer, get into pre-sales collective, get into these communities, see where the conversations are. Look, the biggest buzzword right now is dark social. And that's what's happening behind the scenes because the reality is that people trust their friends and their colleagues more than they're going to trust what marketing says. What's happening right now behind the scenes is shocking. That's part of the reason I'm in this role right now because I saw the opportunity of where this unattributed leads are coming from and how this really happens in the back end. Mm. 
Mm. I don't know that if I'm not part of these communities, I don't know that if I'm not meeting these people who are having these conversations and I'm asking questions because I'm part of them. But Nick, I'm scared. I don't know. I don't have anything to bring to those groups and I'm young. I just don't know what I can do there. Hey, shut up and listen. This is going to take a lot of time. Oh gosh, Nick. You don't have time. I don't got time for you, man. That's sorry. (laughs) But you can hear the excuses because everybody wants that I want to do the least amount of work possible to get the maximum result I want. Then you're in the wrong business. Exactly. Sales is a career. It will sniff that out very quickly because it's only the people that care and that go the extra mile. It doesn't mean working 100 hours a week, but it does mean taking responsibility for the craft and for the message and for the cold call intro and for that email personalization and for that video. It means you better have your A game when the lights are on because sales is all about those few minutes or that hour long call or whatever it might be. You better be ready for that moment. And the best don't prepare and do it on the fly. They prepare for that moment. It's working smart. Yeah. I'm not working smart if I'm just doing what my manager tells me to do. Now, am I following? Am I being a good subordinate? Yes. (laughs) That's not going to get me to the next level. It's everything I do outside of that that gets me to the next level. And what I love about sales is you can do as little as possible and maximize your income. That's not a problem. You have to learn how to do that first. It's working smart. And I think what's really interesting about tech and why you can get traction very quickly, this process has been done tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of times by successful companies. There's nothing new being reinvented here. You separating yourself from your colleagues or from your competitors, that's where the opportunity is. Mm. But the process makes a lot of sense. Send your emails, follow up, follow up with this cadence, ask the right questions, but self-generating interest, which is going to come from, again, communities and events and having these conversations in these WhatsApp groups behind the scenes where half the time you're talking about music and then someone goes, oh, Nick, you guys compete with X. We're looking at that. I'm like, great. Let me introduce you to one of our AEs Mm. so we can solve that problem and make sure you don't make a mistake. And that's what dark social is. Dark social are the conversations that are happening, not in public forums, but they're happening behind closed doors, in text messages, in Slack rooms, in heck, just at a bar meeting somebody in an event or whatever. It happens everywhere. And that's where actual decisions are made. That's where people are moved to make decisions because recommendations happen, referrals happen. Oh, I know a guy, I know a gal, that kind of thing. And I think everything you just said, you've nailed it. But the advent of COVID... And then double down on communities and how they've emerged in the last few years. You can't even say 10x what dark social is in terms of what it used to be. Because yep. it used to be literally, we didn't even have WhatsApp groups like five years ago. But what's interesting is I talk to marketers and say, but how do I attribute that? And I'm like, you can't. And that's the beautiful thing is that you really have to understand the pulse of what's going on, where people are, who's actually serious. I had someone come up to me recently and they're like, look, Nick, I'm between two products. I would like Mm. to buy yours, but I need help with an area of expertise you have. Can we swap time a little bit? That's a dark social conversation. With five stakeholders. Exactly. (laughs) Was that a decision maker or a champion that you were talking to there? A scheduled Zoom with stakeholders. That was a champion. They controlled most of the decision internally, but there was a dark social conversation that actually ended up getting the deal moving. It sounds like. Correct. And basically they needed a favor, which I would have done regardless. But it's true. I would have done it regardless. But the fact that they were saying, look, part of the reason I'm pushing your product forward, one, I think is the best, but it's a little bit more expensive, but it's because it's the best. 
But here's what I need. Can you help me with that? Of course I will. You're building goodwill too. You and I chatted. We've followed each other online, but we've just Mm -hmm. met personally in the last month or so. And it's those kind of connections where you're actually taking an interest in someone and you're actually listening and you're actually wanting to understand their story and how can I help this person? You did that when we talked and that had an impact. I feel like a lot of people don't have conversations like that. They feel like there needs to be a quid pro quo in every scenario that they have in life and they can't just 100%. try to help people. Why is that not a thing? Let's just help people and have good conversations with cool, interesting people. It's funny you say that. And this is how basically I had 24 hours to generate 500 people at this presentation. When I, I lived at sea for 10 years. So I did a lot of these, but I had 24 hours to generate 500 people. If I was going to basically blow through my quota, yep. most people get a hundred, 120. And then they're all week. Am I going to hit my number? Or am I not going to hit my number? What I would do is it was very natural for me was the longest line on the first day of the cruise ship is from guest relations. And I realized very quickly years ago, most people didn't need to be in that line. They had simple questions. Mm. Have the hotel director and the food and beverage. Everyone was there trying to solve problems, but they weren't asking the right questions. This was discovery, but in a non-sales point of view. So what I would do is I would work that line for hours. Everyone else who did my job was like, I'm in Miami. It's turnaround day. It's as close as I have to a day off. I was working that line the minute people were on. Mm. And I'm like, hey... I'm not the services, but can I just ask you a question just to make sure you're in the right line? Most of the time they were in the wrong line. Mm. So I'm like, oh, you don't need to be in this 45 minute line. See that line with two people. (laughs) That's where you, oh, thank you. And they would look at my name badge and say, what do you do? Where are you from? Mm. And now would start the conversation of Conway presentation. What did I do? I solved the problem for them. Why? Because it's natural for me. Mm. And I've had this conversation with people I've worked with before where they're like, yeah, but you got to ask for more. You got to, and I'm like, I'm just going to keep giving. Mm. All the success I've had in life is I just keep giving and it comes back to me. It's more of a pull mentality than a push. I'm not trying to push anything in anyone's face. I want someone that I did a favor for because it's what I would have done anyway to think of me down the road and be like, oh, Nick's the whole on it. You know what? Maybe demo stack isn't the right fit, but we're at least going to get Nick into the conversation. Mm. Yep, exactly. It reminds me of Gary V's jab, 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 right hook. But it sounds like in your scenario, do you need to write hook? Do we ever need to hit people over the head with a big ask of, hey, I'm trying to cash in all this equity, all this goodwill that I've been putting out in the market. Should you write hook or can you just jab your whole career and make a living out of jabbing? Because it's always going to come back. I pretty much have made a career out of jabbing. If I've had to write hook, it's because it's something big. And I've also laid the groundwork for for that ask. Mm Mm-hmm. But I feel if I'm asking, I haven't generated, it's either not the right relationship with the person or I haven't generated enough goodwill that I even have to. It's a very Canadian, very Americanized, I love America now, but it's a very Canadian approach. We just yeah. keep giving, giving and being helpful and see what comes of it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Back to demos for a second, demos and presentations. In tech sales, why are any presentations that are given, whether it's a demo or whatever pre- type of presentation, why are they bad? Where do people go wrong? One is actually the demo. I didn't realize because I had never demoed a product that was so complex that watching a complex demo go off the rails, how messy that can be. A lot of imagined this. I think the key thing with a demo is coming from B2C in such a transactional environment. I always thought of myself as a closer. And what I realize now is closing is a myth. To give a great demo comes from great discovery. And the better you do discovery, the better you're going to throttle that deal through the pipe, the more likely they're going to be to buy because you'll have found the actual issue. Their why now. Often we're just trying to, oh, you're shopping for this. Okay, great. Let me see if it's a fit. But why now? 
we're looking to solve this problem. Okay, but why today? Because mm. right now we're looking at different, but why right now? What happened recently? Because what happens is once a quarter, our CRO comes out and papers go flying. And I'm great. Now I know what string to pluck. Yeah. Because now I understand. That's one thing that B2B does way better than B2C is discovery. Really great. You talked about it a minute ago. You talked about asking the right questions. It's not only asking the right questions, though, is it, Nick? It's also asking the right questions in the right order sometimes. I think that's a big skill in discovery. You've got to almost do it the right way in the right order. If you can do both, then you can do some really effective discovery. And to the right person. Mm. We brought in Chris White, who's really well-known in the pre-sales community a couple weeks ago. And one of the things he was saying was he had this matrix, which it's his, so I won't go fully into it. But basically it was, how important is the question and who's actually asking it? The way he took it through was really interesting. And I think that's important is who's asking the question, who's the actual decision maker. But again, these things come up in discovery. And if you're an SDR or a BDR that's getting the chance to do discovery, that's the most important thing. Calling is that sticking your skin, making those cold calls, but actually doing discovery, that is where you launch when you get into that next tax bracket and you never go back is once you really understand discovery. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Anything else we haven't touched on that you feel like folks should know about how to be more B2C in a B2B world, Nick? I could go on about this for days. I think here's the last thing I'll say is paint better pictures. It's a, an opportunity that's missed by a lot of people. I'll just give you a, this is going to seem like a really silly example, Tyler. But let me ask you something. What does the color red taste like? What does the color red taste like? That's what I asked. Yep. <laughs> a cup. Now nah, we'll make you answer. A cupcake. <laughs> Red velvet cupcake, maybe, which ironically doesn't, doesn't have <laughs> yeah. What's interesting is when I ask that, because it's a unconventional, but I'm painting a picture, a color picture. When you hear that, you're like, oh, wait a minute. My brain says that that's not the right question. <laughs> right. I know that. But at the same time, something popped into my brain. Some sugary mm -hmm. treat from when I was a kid or raspberries or something that affects you that you have a tie to. And I think... So often we're talking our internal language mm. or our products language, but are we actually painting the story for the buyer? And how do you actually get them to visualize sitting in that car and driving their kids to soccer practice on Saturday in that car that they're in now? How do you paint that picture so that there's no question in their mind that this is the picture they should be in? And do you feel like B2C folks paint better pictures? Do you feel like that gets lost sometimes in B2B where we just lose that ability to try to pull that emotion out by painting a better picture? I think so. And the reason is that again, if I'm selling, and cars is just an easy yeah, one yeah. to use this analogy. Not that I've ever sold a car a day in my life, but someone doing great discovering a car is, okay, how many people are going to use this car? What days of the week are you really busy? Oh, you're moving the kids to practice. Now in my mind, I'm thinking maybe the model up actually would be a better fit for Tyler. Getting that picture painted. And I think because again, we talk so much technical stuff in tech that we lose sometimes that flavor for getting people to feel that they're test driving the car as opposed to just looking at some sort of algorithm. <laughs> exactly. Nick, fantastic conversation. If my listeners want to find out more about you online, how can they do so? Just follow me on LinkedIn. That's the best bet. And then if you are a sales engineer or a sales leader and you're tired of your sales engineers spending all that time 
making demos are going to go bust anyway. Check out Demostack, demostack.com. Demostack.com. And Nick, where can people find you out in the world? We didn't touch on you're the Anthony Bourdain of tech. Why do you have that moniker? I gave you the moniker. You might have given me an idea. You are everywhere. Where are you in the world these days? It's just become a joke because cruise ship guy still loves to travel and I travel a lot. <laughs> I posted the other day in the last three months, I've been on three continents at six live events. I will make this recording. I'm in Seattle, Chicago this week. In two weeks, <laughs> I'm in Austin. And then in the month of June, I'm going to be on a 30-day road trip, which we're not talking about yet, but there's a big reveal coming. I feel like this is the stand-up comedian who's like, yeah, I got a show here and I got a show there and I got a couple shows coming up here. So make sure you get your tickets. That's how I feel. You got to get the tickets. But Nick will show up at any B2B tech sales event. So be on the lookout. He's going to be in a blue demo stack shirt. Are you always in the blue hat too, the white and blue? No, I'm wearing my Blue Jays hat today. The hat varies. Sometimes it's an exposed hat. Okay. It does. Okay, gotcha. I'm bald and I live in Phoenix, so I need the sun protection. <laughs> Which, by the way, we were going to bring it up. Golfing in Phoenix, your favorite course? I hate golf. <laughs> but if, if you come through Phoenix and need someone to drive a golf cart, let me know. <laughs> awesome, Nick. Had a blast. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate you, buddy. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. You can find all the links discussed and the show notes at thesaleslift.com. That's the, T-H-E, sales, S-A-L-E-S, lift, L-I-F-T, dot com. Have questions for me? Email me at tyler at thesaleslift.com. We look forward to seeing you back here next week. And we hope today's show brings you the sales lift your business needs. Remember, ideas plus action equals results. You've got new ideas, now it's time to take action, and the results will follow. See you next time.